Hello, I'm Duryadhan Hawk, aka Daya. I'm an Indonesian Pakistani non binary lesbian. Hi, I'm Marianne Salem, aka Mary. I'm a Lebanese Aboriginal bisexual woman. We're two writers who love movies, television, and books, especially when they're gay. And welcome to Gay V Club, where we will be analysing LGBT texts that we like, that we don't like, and how we relate to these texts as gay people of colour. Welcome, welcome to episode, episode four. four. Thanks for listening to us so far. If you like Gay V Club, please don't forget to follow, subscribe, rate us wherever you listen to podcasts, and let your friends know. We also have a YouTube channel where you can access closed captions if you need them. And as of what, last week, we are officially on Apple Podcasts. Today we're continuing our discussion of LGBT biopics and why they often suck. Last episode, we spoke about biopics about gay and bi men, so today we'll be focusing on trans narratives and narratives about women who love women. There are several reasons we wanted to split these episodes. One, there's simply too much to talk about, obviously. Mm -hmm. Two, it's mostly only been biopics about gay or bi men that have managed to garner high levels of attention and acclaim. So, like, the ones we've mentioned so far are Bo Rap, Imitation Game, and Green Book. Those movies had recent award season Sorry. success. And, of course, the third reason we wanted to split these episodes up is that the reasons these biopics, all of them, fail or are offensive is often determined by their portrayal of their subjects' identities, portrayal of their gender, how homophobia, transphobia, sexism, misogyny, racism, and so many other social factors like intersect with who they are as people. Shout out to intersectionality. It's all about that. Today we'll be talking about The Danish Girl, about trans artist Lily Elb, and its place among some of the other extremely rare trans biopics. Then we'll be moving on to some more recent but less acclaimed films which follow the same path, such as Colette, which is about the eponymous bisexual French writer, and Vida and Virginia, which is based on the letters between writers Virginia Woolf and Vida Sackville West. There's also another artist biopic, Frida, about Frida Kahlo, which is an older film, sure, but still very relevant to what we want to talk about. We're also going to discuss The Favourite, which is about Queen Anne, and also in that vein, a little bit about the series Gentleman Jack, which is about the Victorian-era lesbian capitalist and class hater Anne Lister, and of course the latest TV series that I mentioned I'm very excited for, Dickinson, which is about American poet Emily Dickinson. All these films we've been discussing portray people in dramatically different circumstances, each grappling with the struggles of being LGBT and how this intersected with other realities of their everyday lives. That's what these films should be showcasing, but linking all of these biopics is their lack of compassion for the LGBT community that these film subjects were a part of. Just before we begin, a quick content warning. We will be discussing issues of homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, racism, sexual assault, and harassment. Obviously, listen with caution and, you know, if you if you need to, be yeah, safe. Just be safe and please listen at your discretion. So among the offences already mentioned with our criticisms of Green Book, Imitation Game and Biphobia and Rap Shitty, biopics about trans people are subjected to further insult with transphobia. The most recent film to do this is 2015's The Danish Girl by Tom Hooper. The movie is about Lily Elb, a Danish trans woman born in 1882 who worked as a painter and was one of the first people to undergo gender confirmation surgery, or at least it's supposed to be about her. 
I'm pretty sure the community knew before it came out that this film was going to be transphobic, you know? Yeah. Eddie Redmayne, a cisgender man, was cast to play her, which is, you know, a, a transphobic decision which has been industry practice for most trans stories throughout the history of cinema, few as they are. Like, I can't believe we actually even have to say this in 2019. It's so, Ugh. it's so sad that we have to say, but trans women are women mm -hmm. and trans men are men. And it's just, it's extremely harmful to present trans people as being like just cis people dressed as another gender. And just this casting practice contributes to transphobia and just a lack of education in general society. Like Redmayne's casting aside, the Danish girl is still an offence to Lily Elb's legacy in general. It's important to note as well that this film is actually based on a novel, which is a oh. fictionalised a fictionalized version of Lily's life. The author of that novel is a cis gay man, has admitted that he imagined most of the events depicted, completely fabricating entire characters and stating that he was never trying to tell a true story. The film, like, literally uses most of this novel's plot, regardless of the knowledge that is pretty much entirely, like, fictitious, insisting that it is based on a true story, which I guess is not completely untrue. It is based on a real person, but... It's been appropriated. Her story's been appropriated. Yeah. Just a quick run-through of Lily Elp's life, first of all. Most sources state that Lily and Gerda, who played by Alicia Vikander, met in Copenhagen and got married in 1904, both working as artists until they moved to Paris in 1912. At this time, Goethe created several paintings of beautiful women, and the public was actually shocked to later discover that the model that she used was Lily. So throughout the 20s, Lily lived openly as a woman and Goethe a lesbian. In 1930, after Lily's confirmation surgery in Germany, the process for which was extremely experimental at the time, she managed to get her sex and name changed legally. This resulted in the Danish court forcibly annulling their marriage. So legality aside, the actual disintegration of Lily and Goethe's relationship is unclear due to lack of records after their destruction in World War II and just the censorship of a lot of Goethe's sketches. Nevertheless, what we know is they were together for nearly 20 years wow. after Lily began openly presenting as Lily, but the film instead seems to take place over a much shorter period of time like it honestly feels like less than a year when it, it, <laughs> when it, it starts and just in the film Lily's gender is treated as a split personality which has been invented by Gerda who regrets encouraging it and swiftly dissolves their romance it's really weird I mentioned this to you before but when I first watched this movie I really felt I had no idea really about like trans stuff and trans history or not any idea about who she was. Mm -hmm. But I felt watching the movie that the movie was extremely uncomfortable like with itself. Like mm -hmm. it didn't even really know what it wanted to be about really. Like I just was confused watching it like what it was meant, who like, it was meant I to be about. I don't understand why any, well, we do know why any of the people involved wanted to tell this story, but it didn't come from any place of genuine interest in Lilielb, in the trans community, in nope. anything really. So like, it's just extremely harmful to try and pass this narrative off as a true story. And also it just, it erases some genuinely fascinating trans history. Right? Like, from a Lilielb biopic, we could have had like this exploration of like early 20th century queer culture, yeah. like the art movements, the decadence, even like the breakthroughs in medical science. 
But for some reason, Tom Hooper didn't want to make that movie. Like, instead, you mentioned, like, the film being uncomfortable. The film borrows actual tropes from cross-dresser pornography to create a story which portrays Lily as, like, a punishment that Gerda had to endure. Lily is treated as a separate individual to the person that Gerda married, and it's made clear that Gerda does not prefer her. And it's, it's so sad. The film never credits Lily for her bravery to strive for the life that she deserves. That's probably, like, the worst thing. Like, her efforts... And she, like, paved the way for so many people in in Mm. a way. Like, she is so important in that history, and to not Mm. really focus on that. Also, when you were talking about the art movements, Tom Hooper, say what you will about him, he's a very, like, aesthetically pleasing director. Like, he could do something really nice with, like... Explain Cats 2019, then. I'm not... I think... I don't want to acknowledge that movie. We don't talk about Cats... That's homophobic yeah, okay. that you even mentioned that to me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but I think, like, apart from that, cats aside, like, look at, like, Les Mis, and, like, he has a really nice style that could have lent itself really well to a portrayal of that art movement and queer culture if he really like, applied himself, but obviously he wasn't interested in that at all. But yeah, the film definitely never even bothers to credit Lily for her bravery. Her efforts to openly live as a woman are regarded as embarrassing inconveniences to everyone else involved her transition is actually treated as this like grotesque gruesome obsession and like her tragic death is eventually portrayed as like a reward for all the supposed hardships that she put Gerda through which is I don't know so upsetting really yeah it's definitely like portrayed as a huge relief to everyone Mm. like thank goodness we don't have to deal like the final scene of the movie is like they're like sprinkling her ashes in that place where she used to paint all the time and it's it's supposed to be like oh she's free now like fuck fuck this movie fuck this movie honestly like this film this film was a clear attempt at oscar bait we were talking about like why none of the people involved in making this film actually seem to have any genuine interest in portraying trans history that's because this film was actually just a clear attempt at oscar bait which (gasps) Which succeeded it because was? the Academy, it has a history of awarding cis actors playing trans people. Like Hilary Swank, she won Best Actress in 2000 for playing the real American trans man Brandon Tina in Boys Don't Cry. Just two years before the Danish Girls release, Jared Leto won Best Supporting Actor for playing a fictional trans woman in the Ron Woodruff AIDS biopic Dallas Buyers Club. And like Eddie Redmayne, who had just won Best Actor for playing Stephen Hawking, he was nominated again alongside Alicia Vikander, who actually won for such a terrible, terrible role. It truly is a classic case of appropriation mm. without any kind of authentic representation. Like, bleh. it is disgusting the way Hollywood and cis actors only see trans stories as a challenge for them so they can be rewarded with these accolades like how they treat trans people like they only exist for roles for these actors to play so that they can garner like guaranteed oscar success and the fact that you know everyone you just mentioned did win just speaks to that Mm. like this is not an abstract concept that we're or was like was recognized yeah yeah like these actors these cisgendered actors who play these trans people they act as if there's nothing harder 
to do than play a trans person Mm. because these people are so far removed from trans people in day-to-day life as far as as they're aware (laughs) so they think that they automatically deserve some kind of recognition Mm. and this is such a shame given the just the rarity of trans biopics in general and this offensive practice has continued so Mm. last year Scarlett Johansson rightfully came under fire when it was announced that she would be playing real trans man Tex Gill in an Uh, upcoming biopic about his criminal activities in the 1970s. She did drop out of the project as soon as Disney confirmed that they would be making a Black Widow solo movie because she's a fucking sellout who only follows money and has no principles. What do you expect from a scientist (laughs) who loves Woody Allen? Yeah. Before this, her only response to criticisms was that Basically, if other cis actors can do it, why can't I? She was like, why aren't you questioning, like, Hilary Swank? Why didn't you ask Jared Leto this? She's, why didn't you ask Felicity so Huffman this? Like, she's so she's close. So close. <laughs> she's so close to actually getting the point. It's almost painful. Like, girl. Also, we, we fucking we did, did ask. We did ask, okay? And you ignored. Oh, God. Like, <laughs> she just wants to know why she can't play a tree. You know what? Kind of- <laughs> Why can't she? Any animal, any per- any rock, any... Any person of any colour, I should be able to do it. That's my impression of Scarlett Johansson. It's beautiful. I haven't actually seen a Scarlett Johansson movie in a while, so I can't do like a proper impression of her. Her voice is like weirdly deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, anyway, like, even, um, even Rachel Weisz, while promoting disobedience a few years ago, she expressed her interest in playing Dr. James Barry, who was a prominent surgeon in the 1800s, who upon his death was discovered to be trans. Like, I I actually have no idea if this movie is going to happen because there don't seem to be any other details about the project available. Like, there's no, like, I can't find any information on, like, any directors or writers attached. But I hope that, I wouldn't say that I hope it doesn't happen because I think a, a biopic about James Barry would be cool. Mm. But I hope that an actual trans man is cast if it does. Well, they better. Otherwise, don't make it. You know, yeah. like don't make it. Even on instances where there isn't cis washing, yeah. there is just general erasure of trans people in history. For instance, True. that that movie. Thankfully, no one watched this movie Stonewall, where they show. That's right. Don't they not include any of the trans people that were it? Yeah, they Stonewall? ignore the involvement of black trans women like Marsha P. Johnson, like Mish Major. In the everything. riots. Yeah. We literally owe them everything. Exactly. Like, more people need to speak about this in general. More people need to be showing solidarity with trans people, including and especially the cis LGB community. Like, we do owe them everything. Like, trans activists already have so much on their plate. Like, so many more pressing things that they unfortunately have to fight for. Like, getting governments to treat them like human beings. And we should at least be standing yeah. with them in relation to the rights. To how they're represented because we really do like cis lgb people owe the trans community especially black especially trans especially the black trans community especially black trans women like everything for actually creating the movements which have done so much for us like it's the least yeah. that we could do honestly trans people just deserve so much better like tom hooper like when he was criticized for casting eddie redbane was like oh there was just He's just like, I absolutely think that trans people should have access to roles like this. It's like, dare I say, only trans people should have access to playing roles like this, first of all. And he was all just like, I just think there's something really gender fluid and feminine about Eddie Red. Fuck off. What is he? Why would you say anything? anything? Like, this movie is a classic case of 
why would you say anything? You know, I think it would have been better if this movie hadn't been made or they'd done their research properly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the two. Now that we've exercised our demons about this terrible Danish devilry movie, we're going to move on to biopics that cover bi and lesbian women. And we're going to start off... I mean, Lily Alp was probably bi. We would interpret Lily Alp as being bi. But, you know... I should say cisgendered, then. Cisgendered bi and lesbian women. And we're going to kick things off with uh, Colette, which is a biopic about bisexual French writer Colette, starring Kira Knightley as Colette. With a focus on her first marriage, Willie is played by Dominic West. Willie was also 14 years older than Colette, meeting her when she was a teenager and marrying her some years later when she was 1920. I'm not laughing at this. I'm laughing that in the movie... They try to pass off Kira Knightley, 30- who was a 30-year-old tax-paying adult woman, <laughs> as a 15-year-old in the beginning, but- just, by, just by giving her pigtails, yeah. And a fringe... <laughs> Yeah. So Colette wrote four extremely successful novels under Willie's pseudonym, and he took credit for her work. Willie is undoubtedly the villain of this movie, but it's become an obvious pattern in films about bisexual people that they focus on their different sex relationships over their same-sex relationships. As we discussed last episode in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. That being said, Colette does dedicate a significant portion of the film to Colette's romance with Missy and her other dalliances with other women. But, you know, for a film trying to expose how misogyny oppresses female creativity, Colette spends an inordinate amount of time, an amount of this plot, framing, you know, Colette is a literary icon, like it spends so much time framing her husband Willie Mm. as the most formative element of her identity. You know, as he forces her to write, introduces her to women, and is just generally painted as the central figure in her life. Like, the film's unrestrained misogyny undercuts Colette's role in her own womanhood, essentially, relegating her identity as a bisexual woman to a titillating subplot. I don't really believe that point, though. You don't? I don't think it's a titillating subplot. It kind of is, like, the way they sort of... um. Like the way, you know that horrible scene where she's like, your mouth. That's your mouth not titillating like a, at all. That's like fuck, It's like they always like wanted to like make it as unsexy as possible. <laughs> That's another thing about the gender bias. They try to make it as unsexy. Well, actually, no, the other, the opposite could also be true. <laughs> but either way, this. That was an her, awful weekend. Her bisexuality when we is like sidelined in comparison to how yeah. Willie is treated. Like Willie is treated by the film. And it's really just trying a, to be a story about how a man shaped a woman, yeah. basically. Like, I do want to say that the film was directed by Washer Smolin, who is gay. The first draft of the script was actually written in 2001 by his partner, Richard Glatzer, who unfortunately died before the film went into production. He had ALS. They had been writing this film for about 15 years. It was a real passion project for wow. them. And it's just so sad that they were only able to because suddenly this story like about a woman in an abusive relationship with a man who took credit for her achievements was suddenly relevant to what was happening in the Western film industry at the time. Even though technically it was always relevant and it has been relevant in pretty much every industry since the beginning of time. You know how there's this wave now of like post Me Too film and TV that are kind of like exploitative, just trying to like capitalize off women's pain. Like that crazy ass movie where Charlize Theron looks like a plastic doll. Yeah, (laughs) like... 
yeah, like Bombshell, like The Morning Show, like all those random TV episodes that have like an episode that's just like their take. It's on... like they feel obligated to do it. Even yeah, so that they can remain did. relevant, basically. It's so haphazard and ham-fisted. Yeah, it's weird. It. It's interesting that Colette was kind of able to sneak in early with this because maybe that wasn't their plan at first because I know that Wash was small and did really want to make the movie as soon as possible after his partner died. The way that it was marketed when it came out, like it definitely took advantage of the current climate in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah to did. promote it. Most of the trailer really centered on her resistance mm. to Willie, and I really thought the whole movie I didn't know who she was. Like, mm. going into this movie, when I saw the trailer, I had no idea who this person was. I was just excited because mm-hmm. Keira Knightley and period dramas, when is that not exciting? <laughs> um, I mean that. I mean as, that. A, as a Keira Knightley stan, like, we'd known that this movie was coming since at least 2016, yeah. and it was, like, in, like, pre-production hell, and we were all suffering. We were like, mm-hmm. when is Keira Knightley going to kiss a woman? Yeah. Like, that was very much the mood. And But the thing is, like, because of the intentions, because of this kind of post me to exploitation the thing is with colette's story it's harder to capitalize off the pain of queer women because no one cares about queer no women one, yeah no one cares about like for instance the wife which came out also last year that glenn close movie where she won some awards i'm glad stuff. i'm glad you brought this up because when i had had bought colette very legally from from a shop and i was telling people to watch it and they would ask me what it was about I'd be like, oh, it's about this woman, Colette. You know, she was a famous French author. She wrote all these novels. And in the early stages of her career, her husband took credit for these novels. And it's about, like, her emancipation from him and the life she led afterwards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when I would start describing that, would go, oh, so it's the wife? And I'd be like, no, because this is about a bisexual French woman who was a very important but again this kind of story has always been relevant in every single industry in every single kind of subculture of and culture of society like Mm. that issue is not only in the film industry among white women it's Mm -hmm. everywhere with everyone but yeah it just makes me angry that everyone who i spoke to when i described this film was like oh so it's just the wife Mm, like just the wife yeah it's just the wife it's just a gay version of the wife yeah i mean the thing is, Colette's story was a gay version of the wife, which is why I think in the movie there is definitely clear gender bias. It's just harder for them to capitalize off the pain of queer women because no one cares about queer women. It's like one thing to show a woman break free from this oppressive man and grow as an artist on her own. But like the quote unquote problem with Colette's story was that she spent, she spent that independence like with women. She did what now? I'm leaving. Which we obviously can't have on a screen. No, not on the large screen. You know, we can't do that. All the seven-year-olds that come to see Kira Knightley in period dramas will have heart attacks and die. Her relationships with anyone other than her husband were sidelined in the movie. And even, like, Kira Knightley's casting, like, obviously, you know, the lesbians and bi women like me who have stanned her since... Pirates of the Caribbean? Since Bender, like, Beckham, you fake. <laughs> As a gay Kira stan, you know that experience of walking into a Kira Knightley movie to sit down and being the youngest person there and being surrounded by 70-year-old white people. Except when you saw the Nutcracker. <laughs> I bet you were the oldest person there. I was, yeah. <laughs> no, my friend who I went with, who was two years older than me, was the oldest person oh, there. okay. Yeah, yeah. Shut up. Okay. So, yeah, basically, 
Even though Kira is definitely a draw for the Wallawa, she doesn't know that. So basically all her films are marketed towards this particular old white audience who don't really want to see queerness on screen. It's interesting, though, that Kira has been was involved in the imitation game and was also involved in this because didn't she have that anecdote that she mm. used to like... <laughs> so we were discussing friends yesterday the idea that many actors often have an anecdote they pull out like usually these actors like are straight straight a straight or cisgendered or whatever if they've made a project that has vague or not vague queer connections or connections to lgbt culture they usually have like an anecdote they can pull out and be like oh well i have a vague connection to this culture in some way or another like they have a relative or maybe they had an experience when they were younger yeah, and Kira's one was that, you know, she took her female friend as her prom date and they kissed in their prom photo and it was banned by their school, which was also very horrible, but also like, I don't think that that's a fake story, but also I just think it's very convenient. I feel like every cishet actor that comes out with a movie where they play like an LGBT character, they will always conveniently have a story like that in order to kind of like justify their proximity to this story. Mm. I wish they didn't do that, you know? Like, I don't feel like you have to do that in order to... Like, I feel mm. like if you can just be honest... Like, as long as you're just respectful... I think yeah. with cis people who are playing LGB characters, as long as you're respectful about it, then that's fine. It's not on the same level as cis actors playing trans actors. It's nowhere no, near like God, that. No, God, no. No. Um, like, I yeah. really hate that recently people have kind of, like, tried to pretend that it is. And also, you know, guys, you should be focusing this energy behind the camera more. Yes. With LGBT stories. That's need how to you have... do it. Yeah. I mean, I think Colette is definitely, like, if it was directed by a straight person, it would have been so much worse. Can I say? But it would have been it One thing been so, I really so loved, like, I love about Colette, though, is the aesthetic of it. Like, it really mm. pleases me a lot. And another thing I like is that there's a lot like of... Like the period jokes? It's yeah. Just, it's cute. And there's a lot of people of colour, like mm. in the background, in the ensemble cast. Like yeah, it's, it's like the opposite of whitewashing. Yeah. He cast people of colour as people who were historically white, and he cast trans people as cis characters. Mm. I think the issue with a lot of period dramas is they kind of try to cling to posterity. They're shot in a very traditionalist way, really still shot steady cams, everyone behaving properly. But in Colette, it's kind of like the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. Like, there's that intimacy and that mm. like, normalcy that you feel which a contemporary audience can actually relate to. Which is great It's about it. It's creating the impression of what you want people to feel, mm. not necessarily creating the accuracy, which I think is more important when you're making a period drama. One show that I've watched recently that I don't think does this at all and it really suffers from it is I was watching an episode of that new show, The Great. Catherine the Great. I think that show tries to gun in too much on accuracy and in doing so they sacrifice any kind of impressionability or relatability because you're just sitting there going, like, why should I care kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. you know. Alienates you. It does. Because it's a different time period. Like, you need to be able to relate to it in some way still. Like, it still needs to be relevant to us in order for us to be interested. Yeah. There has to be a reason you feel like this story from the past needs to be told now. And it can't just be because you think Helen Mirren is great. Yeah. And it can't just be because you want to profit off the Me Too movement and women's pain and stories. Which is kind of what they want to do. They make the point yeah. over and over again. Catherine the Great, she says every like second line that comes out of her mouth is like, oh, people hate a strong woman in power. Like every second line, that's that's it. Like some variation on that line. I'm like, yep, they do. 
waiting for something else mm. to happen. Like, why should I care kind of thing. Like, okay, yeah, we know that. We're not brainwashed to idolise the monarchy because Mm -mm. we're not white, so... So, yeah. But I think, going back to Colette, before we move on to our next... Our next icon is, like, yeah, I think that the one thing that Colette does do really well, I think it's got a really good script. Like, in terms of how the movie plays out, it's, like, Mm. a really good script. Aesthetic is good. The way it creates emotion is good. It's just not really, like, the best... Kira has a great teeth-gritting moment. She does. Yes. She does her teeth-gritting thing so good. You see her. You see her kiss a woman. Yeah. Several times. Oh, and she's got hairy armpits. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she actually, like, grew out her arm. Wow, amazing. 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 We love it. Yeah. So there was a lot of, like, period drama stuff that was really good in Colette. I think it period, like... It's a good period drama. It's, a good it's period not a drama. good... It's not a I good drama. I still biopic. don't really like it anyway. All right, shall we move on? Yeah, so while the husband bias in Colette was disappointing to watch, at least at least Willie was always framed as the villain. By the end of the movie, Colette washes her hands of his parasitic influence on her life. Like, at least it does that. The same could not be said for the 2002 Frida Kahlo biopic, Frida, directed by Julie Taymor and starring Salma Hayek, who also did research pitch and produce the film. In this movie, Carlos' husband, who's a fellow Mexican artist, Diego Rivera, he is presented as the most influential person in her life from her beginnings as an artist right up until her death. And like, there's a lot of frustration while watching this film. It almost kind of portrays Carlo as being like foolish, like for having that enduring love for him. It's just very yeah, frustrating like she's an to watch. Idiot, you know? Like, I get that this was a passion project for Salma Hayek and Frida Kahlo is her hero, but I don't know. Like, I think that's one aspect where the film fails. Another element that we do have to consider now is all the scenes that do reference Carla's bisexuality, her attraction to other women, they seem to be an afterthought. And in December 2017, Salma Hayek revealed through her piece in the New York Times, that those scenes were actually only shot to appease Harvey Weinstein. While it's obviously not great that Hayek's original vision for the movie seemingly omitted Frida Kahlo's bisexuality, that's not the point. The wider issue that we want to discuss today is the issue of the male gaze intruding on and controlling the portrayals of the sexualities of women who love women, where films about bi women and lesbians are marketed for straight male audiences, like for their pleasure, rather than for actual bi women and lesbian viewers. So Weinstein, who had been making unwanted sexual advances towards Salma Hayek for some time before the movie went into production, made several extremely unreasonable demands and stipulations for the film, which his company Miramax was producing. This included an unpaid rewrite of the script, which Edward Norton completed uncredited, as well as the raising of $10 million and the recruitment of several big-name stars to play supporting roles, which Hayek achieved much to Weinstein's annoyance. I'm just going to read a direct quote from the Times article that Salma Hayek wrote. He had been constantly asking for more skin, for more sex, once before Julie Taymor got him to settle for a tango ending in a kiss instead of the lovemaking scene he wanted us to shoot between the character Tina Madotti, played by Ashley Judd, and Frida. Halfway through shooting, Harvey turned up on set and complained about Frida's unibrow. He insisted that I eliminate the limp and berated my performance. Then he asked everyone in the room to step out except for me. He told me that the only thing I had going for me was my sex appeal 
and that there was none of that in this movie. So he told me that he was going to shut down the film because no one would want to see me in that role. He offered me one option to continue. He would let me finish the film if I agreed to do a sex scene with another woman, and he demanded full frontal nudity. Ugh. Which is disgusting. Like Salma Hayek, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. It's just, it's such a gross abuse of power, and just as if stories about bi women and lesbians, it's like as if they only have value when they can contribute to men's pleasure. I think it's also fair to comment here, like, Frida is a woman of colour. There's an aspect mm. of like fetishization Absolutely. to that as well. You know, not only fetishization in terms of sexually, but also like fetishizing her pain and like yeah. and her life in general, which I don't think Salma Hayek really wanted to do. I think she genuinely set out to make a relatively truthful. I mean, I feel like she might have been uncomfortable with the bisexual part. Maybe yeah. that's why she wanted to leave it out. But, like, you know, she set out to make a relatively truthful depiction of a person she admired, and instead she's having to deal with this gross fetishization by this white man who is making these awful stipulations for her to make yeah, Who this has movie. a history of sexually harassing her as well. Further along in the article, she said that she actually had a breakdown on set when filming. She said, like, not because she had to be naked with another woman, but because she had to be naked with another woman for Harvey Weinstein. And, like... She actually had to take like, a tranquilizer to get through it, which is, that's so awful. That is like a that's form an... of sexual assault. Like, Yes, that is, it is. Like, Absolutely. It, it's, it's wrong and it makes me so it's angry. It's wrong to put a person through that. No. You know what's even more disgusting? Like he wasn't even happy with, with the finished scene and he actually threatened to release the film straight to video just because he could. He forced Salma Hike and the director, Julie Taymor, like, to fight for a theatrical release which they achieved by meeting further ridiculous criteria that Weinstein assigned, like, just because he could, just because he could make them jump through hoops. So he did it. All love to them for fighting for this movie, man. Yeah. Like, honestly, in that sense, it's really hard knowing all of that to mm -hmm. criticise this movie because yeah. knowing just how much they had to fight even for people to see it mm -hmm. and what they had to go through even mm -hmm. to get it made is, like, I think Frida and Colette's stories are quite similar. Like, they have they have similar aspects to it. And the fact that the writers of Colette started around the same time that mm -hmm. Salma Hyde wanted to make Frida and, like, they had to sacrifice, like, all those years. Literally, the director, his husband, died before mm -hmm. they actually got to make the movie. They had to sacrifice all that time in order to make it. And Salma Hyde, who actually did manage to make the movie at a sooner point, like, at a more immediate point, what that cost her is so, it's so sad. Like, no one wins. I hadn't read this article mm. when it came out because I knew it would contain very sort of triggering content, so I mm. didn't read it. Kind of wish I had because it meant when I did watch Frida, which was only recently, I got really excited, like, during the Woolawa scenes, like, the the scenes where mm. Frida is with women. Josephine but especially Baker. her and the scene with, like, Josephine Baker. Like, as soon as, like, this scene came, I was like, is that meant to be Josephine Baker, who is also mm. another bicon, by the way, guys, who also sh should get her own biopic i believe mm -hmm. but then learning the context of these scenes like i honestly wish they hadn't i wish it never happened yeah it, it's awful also i was just shook i realized watching it i didn't know much about freda carlo and learning that she was uh had an affair with trotsky was like <laughs> i just i'm still a bit shook over it to be honest like what a legend <laughs> mm -hmm. i can see why salma was like so ready to fight for this movie because mm. 
I think it is important. It's a great story, and mm. I think Julie Taymor's vision was beautiful, and I love... It's like an artist biopic that actually uses her art in an interesting way, and... Actually oh, has yeah. direct references to her art, like unlike the Danish Girl, for instance. No. Yeah, like the beautiful transitions of mm. shots, the way the movie ends. Yeah. Ah, oh, beautiful. I think Frida, both the movie, Salma's portrayal of her, and also like Frida as a person, deserved better film. But at the mm. same time, it's not for lack of trying. Mm. Like I think, like Salma Hayek. And the people that made this movie, their hearts were in the right place, but ultimately, like, Weinstein and his goons. Yeah, and that's just one of the ways that the LGBT biopics can fail. We've talked a lot about how a lot of the time LGBT biopics fail because of the way they're written or the way they're mm. directed, but in this instance, those aren't the things that are the reason this failed. Like, yeah. I don't think. This failed because... Because of an evil person. Because Harvey Weinstein tried to bury it, yeah. like, at every step of the way. Mm-hmm. But it still endured. Yes. If you're in Australia, you can watch it on Stan. So it's a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Mary and I went to the British Film Festival in Sydney, and that weekend we saw both Colette and also Vita and Virginia, which was... A disappointing experience for both of us. Truly it was. I have been in love with Gemma Arterton since she played Kelly Jones in the film A that I bring up on this podcast a lot because it's a great film A, St. Trinian's. And the prospect of seeing Gemma Arterton kiss a woman was, you know, bitch, I'm about to faint. Like me wanting to see Kira Knightley kiss a woman. Yeah. Yeah. So on this weekend that... These two films, we were both going to see them. We were we were so excited, you know, mm-hmm. for, for both of us and for ourselves. And in both cases, we were met with grave disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it was that scene in Colette where she's with um Eleanor Tomlinson and she has that really <laughs> terrible Southern accent, which doesn't even make sense because they're all speaking English. And if Kira's supposed to be French, why isn't she speaking with a French accent? Why is this, why is this I, Southern? Yeah. Like, mm. Why is this... Why are they making her do a terrible southern accent? And why know. are they trying to make like sexy foreplay talk like before? Yeah, it's you terrible. Have teeth like an alligator. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, Vita in Virginia. Yes, Vita in Virginia is the next biopic, Woolawa biopic, featuring two Woolawa, a whole two. <gasps> well, I suppose, you know. Vita Sackville West yep. and Virginia Woolf. The legends themselves. With Virginia Woolf being played by Elizabeth Debicki and Vita Sackville West being played by Gemma Artenton. The movie is based off a play, which is based off Vita and Virginia's letters that they sent to each other. I think they sent them to each other over about 10 years, wasn't it? There's over like 500 of them talking to each other and yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. Like mm. they were all like published posthumously and it. Unfortunately, some of them were destroyed, mm. I did read, and yeah. censored and all this other stuff. That's also a running thread with Haddon, these biopics that are about historical women, is that a lot of their. the records of these women are destroyed. Mm. Because, you know, people don't want to acknowledge that. Homophobia. Mm. This film, I think, fails for a lot of reasons. The least of which is that Gemma and Elizabeth Debicki, they don't have any chemistry. No. They really do. It's just tragic. It's tragic. I think in the scenes where they're separate from each other, their performances oh, their are performances really are good. Great. But together, 
it's like Gemma is overacting and Elizabeth is underacting. This movie, I think, I don't know, it's like it takes itself too literally in like the worst way possible. Mm. There are whole scenes where they have conversations that are actually just lifted from their letters. They're directly quoting their letters or they're directly quoting like their books. I feel like there was a way that you could have done that in an engaging way, but this way just no, wasn't. And it comes off, it came off really clunky because... And when they had like actual original dialogue, it was terrible. Yeah. Like the reality is no one talks like that. That's why people write like that. And that's why letters mm-hmm. are like special. You can tell essentially that this movie is based off a play because... It's the kind of thing you can go, oh, I can see how this would work on stage, mm. but as a film, it it doesn't move anywhere, it doesn't do anything. So... Evergreen. Yeah, I was trying so. not to talk about it. <laughs> so when this film was first announced, way back when, God, when was that? Like 2016 at some point? I don't know. When 2016, one of the greatest moments of my life occurred when I read an article that said that Eve Green, the other great love of my life, well, she was until she said stupid things about Brexit. Now I don't care. But she was cast as Virginia Woolf and then Gemma Artington cast as Vida Sackville West. I, I literally remember like wanting to faint and pass out because I was like wow this sounds amazing but then literally but then then Miss Green pulled out to be in the live action Dumbo (laughs) the live action Dumbo movie directed directed by by her boyfriend Tim Burton or at least at the time he was I don't know I don't know if they're together anymore but like they were at the time isn't that the worst thing that you've ever heard just that really is Ava Green Imagine passing, drops out yeah. of playing Virginia Woolf to be in a live action Dumbo movie. I don't understand straight people. With her boyfriend. I don't get it. Tim Burton. Can't relate. Can't. No. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. And initially, I thought that my dissatisfaction with the movie was purely stemmed from, well, A, the fact that I didn't think Gemma and Elizabeth had any chemistry, but B, like, that I knew on some level and it was hard to not think about, mm. like, how Eva Green would have been in that role and how yeah. she would have embodied would have embodied Virginia Woolf, which I still think she probably would have done it a slightly different way. But whether or not that way is better, I can't judge. Yeah, we'll never know. We'll never know. But, like, I couldn't stop imagining her in the scenes instead of Elizabeth Debicki. I feel like I mistook some of my, like, I mistook just the fact that it was – it's just a bad film, first it of all. First of all, it's it's a terrible movie. It's a <laughs> it's a good script for a play, but a bad script for a movie. Mm-hmm. And amongst like other weird decisions made, but like I initially blamed the lack of chemistry, and I feel really bad about this now. I initially blamed the movie's just like poor quality on the lack of chemistry because that is probably a big part of it. And I thought because Elizabeth Debicki was like the second choice, mm. like it was like that. But but then, <laughs> but then, oh, um, but then the we... movie actually had like a general release in the UK. This and, year, yeah, this year, mm. a few months ago, and then we actually got to see Gemma Arterton and Tanya Button, the director. They actually started promoting it and telling us what they actually thought about these women, about Vita Sackville West, about Virginia Woolf, and it it's made me realize that. Honestly, it was, like, pretty lesbophobic and biphobic, the things that they were saying. Basically, while promoting this film, 
they described that one of the selling points, they like actually thought this was a boast, <laughs> was that audiences, like early audiences watching the film would say, oh, I forgot it's like that we're watching like a gay couple. Like it feels like we're just watching two people. <laughs> <laughs> which like people would forget that they were watching something gay which i feel like is like that's the greatest sin you can commit exactly like, when you're making a film about two very practically confirmed mm. bisexual or and or lesbian women mm. but yeah it's pretty much the biggest sin you can commit i think as a filmmaker and you can definitely tell in the film how ungay it was like, not just in the lack of their chemistry together, but the way that these characters in this movie would talk about each other in their absence, it was very ham-fisted. Oh, God, she's so mysterious to me. I don't know what she's... I don't know yeah. what she's feeling. I don't know if she actually likes me. The yeah. thing is, yeah, in this movie, we're supposed to believe that they're deeply in love with each other, but they really don't seem to like each other at all. No, no, that is true. They they might mm. seem to be in love, but most of the time they don't seem to be... Like, they yeah. like being around each other, which is, like, a really weird dynamic. There's so like, many scenes where... they're where, kind of just, like, torturing each other There's so almost. many scenes where Virginia kicks Vita out of the house or the room or <laughs> something, like... Or Vita turns up to a party just to, like, be petty with Virginia. I'm like, I don't know, like, was this what they were like? Is this what you think they were like? Because mm. judging from the letters that we have, I don't think that's what they were like. Yeah, also, that's another reason why the script doesn't work, like, reading directly off their letters. With the way that they're behaving with each other, you really don't buy that they would even be writing these letters to each other, you know? Mm. The way we're talking about this movie kind of reminds me of the imitation game, like the bragging mm. point of it is that it's not as gay as it could be, you know? Mm -hmm. and that's, Not as gay as you feared it would be. Yeah, and, and you know what, you gays, you silly gays, you should be really grateful because we're not portraying Vita and Virginia in a really sexual way, okay? Oh, God, yeah, Gemma Arterton definitely said something about it. She's just like, oh, I'm, like, everyone was really happy, like, to not have seen anything, like, too gratuitous, you know, nothing like boobs out or anything like that. Like, very ah, bold of someone whose for... major career move was being in St. Tinian's. <laughs> I don't think we need to talk about this movie anymore. I can't even talk about it coherently. Like, this is going to be the weakest part of the episode because Sorry, guys. genuinely, like, I really hate this movie so much. It's, it's so bad. It's I don't even want to talk about it. Movie. But just the fact that it's bad and the fact that people and making it, like, have no actual real respect for Vita and Virginia's identities. But I don't, I even, don't think they have enough respect. I don't even respect. think they respect their work. Like, forget mm. their identities. Like, yeah. I don't even think they respect them or, like, understand what these women did in their time mm -hmm. and, like, what they also suffered during their time. The way the movie does try and handle, I say handle, quote-unquote, but mm -hmm. it's not really a handling, the way it sort of just chucks virginia's mental illness in there willy-nilly like you know just having her randomly like walk out of houses and walk into water and like all this stuff like you feel like it's gonna go somewhere and it never does like the movie i feel actually felt like two separate movies like mm -hmm. a movie about vita and a movie about virginia that they just went i i guess we'll just smash them together <laughs> and see how that goes like mm -hmm. it, it felt like they were competing to be the protagonist of the movie that should have been about both of them. Mm. That's how I felt watching it, but... Yeah. Yeah. But then we went to see Anna and the Apocalypse that weekend as well, and that was, an, that was just an excellent time. 
Anna and the Apocalypse is great. Anyway, yeah. let's move on anyway. to something that's actually good Yay. that we want to talk about. Let's talk the about- favorite. Woo! I love 2018. How I love how it's directed called the by Jokos Lanthimos, <laughs> starring Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weisz, and Emma Stone. It truly is the favorite. Mm-hmm. The favorite is set in the 18th century. It's about Queen Anne, about Sarah Churchill, and about Abigail Hill. And it's based on the relationship between these three women. And like Vida in Virginia, it is drawn and extrapolated from letters mm. that were discovered that had been kept by by, by Sarah Churchill. By Sarah Churchill. And, um, like letters between her and Queen Anne. Yeah, so the thing about The Favourite is, like Vida in Virginia, it is not based on any concrete historical record. Obviously, it is derived from history, but mm. we don't have like an official record of the events that transpired yeah. in the film from the perspectives that they're shown from. But where like Vida in Virginia was quite rigid and quite literal with its interpretation mm-hmm. of correspondence, like to the point of almost sheer boredom. Mm-hmm. Absolute the, boredom. Absolute almost. boredom. Like, The Favourite has a lot of fun with yeah. this. Like, it's a v- very yeah. compelling lesbian narrative right up to the point <laughs> where it makes us want to die. Yeah. Just, that was a very upsetting movie, I think. Like, it's a it's a really great movie. It's really good, but also... <laughs> Everyone in it that It made me so miserable. Everyone in that movie has such a horrible life. Like but in different ways. Yeah, I mean Like Queen Anne is so sick. Imagine actually making us feel sorry for like a monarch, like I know. a British monarch. I know. <laughs> like but she I don't feel too sorry, but actually like me remembering oh yeah, that's Queen Anne and she had like a huge investment in the slave trade made me like feel better about Oh, true. <laughs> How shitty the movie made me feel. Anyway. But in terms of the story, like thinking about them in the story, they're all like so sad. Yeah. They're such sad people like and petty and because of the like ambiguous nature of letter correspondence, mm-hmm. the movie does a great job, I think, of relaying some events in great detail, mm-hmm. like parties, like in like almost like in this very intimate detail and then others are sort of just fleeting glimpses creating the feeling of someone writing a letter about their day today you know Mm -hmm. where you would like go oh yeah this happened like you'll talk about something specific Mm -hmm. but then you you know and then you'll be like oh yeah and then we had dinner or something Mm -hmm. you know like I, i think it does a really good job of balancing that out like the film doesn't try to extend the wider context of the situation beyond what's mm-hmm. relevant to these three women. So you hear about the war and all of that stuff that's going on, but it's really just background noise to the way these three women are. You get the feeling yes, of what it would have been like over historical accuracy, which is great. I really do believe all good period dramas strive mm. to that. Like yeah. they strive to create an impression, not accuracy, mm-hmm. um, unless they're trying to create accuracy for humor which is a different thing but like the intimate almost closet like well it is closeted the closeted nature of this story because it kind of feels like a slash uh, like a slash fan fiction like of history and it makes me wonder like how many relationships like this yeah like are there in history that are hidden away in letters Mm -hmm. are hidden away in you know portraits and all this stuff. It's kind of like how historians, you know how you read those memes of like historians finding out like kings had like really close like 
close friends that they <laughs> that they lived with and that they had shared a bedroom with and they're like, ah, yes, their closest friend. <laughs> I think the favourite made me wonder, like, how much of history is populated by things like this and we just don't know because it, we're not taught it and it's mm-hmm. not. I think a lot of people spoke about the girl power of this movie, but mm. I don't think a lot of people talked about, like, the relationship aspect of it. At least I didn't yeah. hear about that as much as I heard. Yeah, no one actually talked about the romance mm. that it was. I mean, I don't really think it's romance. It's very, it's a very antagonistic kind of romance. No one talks about the love between. Mm. No between one talks these about women, it really. And the only time the anecdote I got tired of hearing <laughs> while they were promoting this film was Olivia Coleman when she was talking about like filming the scene when. Emma Stone like fingers her and she didn't want like Emma Stone to like actually like put her hand up there so what she did was she put like a sponge yeah like up there so that Emma would know like when yeah she'd reached the point or whatever <laughs> and um like they were kept wanting to laugh because there was like a sponge or whatever and I was like I'm so tired of hearing this anecdote and you're not actually talking about like the context of that scene it's really weird that that scene was like, aha, pure comedy. I'm like, but the relationships in this That's movie. That's a really fucked up scene, actually. Yeah, it's really horrible. Like, they manipulate each other through this, like, mm. through these sensual sort of mm-hmm. relationships they have with each other. Not between um, Abigail and Sarah, but mm. more, be- yeah. Yeah, because the- they're cousins. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I feel like it was very weird to see a lot of people, not straight washing, but like, Side. Just totally ignoring yeah. f- how fucking gay this movie was. Yeah. <laughs> and being like, oh, it's all girl power. Like, no, yeah. it, no, bro, it's actually, like, really gay. Like, I don't think this movie's girl power. I just think it's gay. Like, I don't feel empowered watching these women. Yeah. They kind of just make it it's like, oh, well, how great is it to see, like, all these women have, like, the leg room to, you know, perform at their best. And, you know, I think the performances are great. It's great to have a movie that gives so many women the opportunity. Well, so many white women. So many white women. <laughs> the opportunity to really have fun with it and like actually do good work, mm. you know. But that's what they were focusing on. They're kind of just like, let's. Side- I mean, let's sideline the fact that let's not talk about. It. In all fairness, Rachel Weisz did talk about it a lot. Rachel Weisz, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, I mean, no, but I feel other- that's like residual from disobedience, though. Yeah, but that was good though that she yeah. had that residual. Otherwise, yeah. she might not have. But point is i think the favorite is a very respectful like all things considered um it is a very respectful like telling of these dare i say accurate though we don't know exactly Mm. what happened but i think it's quite it's definitely respectful to the community i think yeah like it's not a it's not like a cakewalk but no it doesn't cop out with an ending that feels unrealistic or Mm. feels like What's the, what like gratuitous if you like like that final scene of that movie mm. is like soul crushing like the way that it's done you know we we always have that debate on whether or not our stories should be sad or whether they should be happy but i think they should just be authentic they should just be what they are they should yeah just be what they are you know if this is a story of three extremely unhappy women in like a very toxic set of relationships then that's what the ending should reflect. It shouldn't mm-hmm. have an like, end. Like, we shouldn't be asking for that kind of wish fulfillment Yeah, from it. I did remember seeing a lot of people being upset that The Favourite was a gay film that didn't have a happy ending, but I was sort of like, what did you think it was going to have? Like, It made me feel upset, but like, I, didn't, I wasn't upset that the movie ended like that. It was just, you know. 
It's because it's the a sad emotional movie. impact of it. Yeah, the, yeah, it's a sad movie. You're meant to be sad, like yeah. when you when you finish. It's a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. What did you expect, dude? <laughs> oh yeah, because Yorgos... if you don't feel fucked up by the end of a Yorgos Lanthimos movie, like you're probably asleep. Yeah, sorry, but <laughs> wake up. I just lo- also love the the favorite as a period drama as well. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's just fun. It's so much fun. Yeah, you know they, you know that that term black. It's good that it's three women. It's good that it's three women. But you know that term black comedy, like is mm-hmm. thrown around a lot. It's very much yeah. Yeah, but I feel like that's what a black comedy is. What you it know? should be. Yeah. So we like the favorite, but I want to talk about. Can we just briefly talk about some television series? Yes. First yep. up, we are going to mention Gentleman Jack. Full disclosure, I, I haven't finished Gentleman Jack. I got bored. I have. <laughs> I got bored watching it. I think I'm only up to episode five, and I'm I'm just so bored. But it's fun, I guess, if you forget the fact that Anne Lister is a horrible Yeah, person. same way if, like, yeah, you forget in The Favourite mm. that these are terrible monarchs who are, like, obscenely rich. Yeah, same way. <laughs> I think, though, the difference between The Favourite and Gentleman Jack, though, is The Favourite does make that the obsceneness of their, mm. like, it does make the point yeah. that they are obscenely rich a lot. And, like, the cruelty the cruel- of that. Oh, then the cruelty of that. Like, that point is made quite mm-hmm. often. But in Gentleman Jack, it's sort of like, ooh, We're supposed to root for her. Ooh, ooh, ooh. She's a lesbian and she's owning the property and wow. And she hates poor people. Hashtag and she's feminism. Out. Hashtag girl boss. She annoys the crap out of me. And I I actually think there should be space to have like unlikable lesbians and unlikable women who love women. There should be a space for that. And I think Anne Lister is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. But but I think the show kind of romanticizes it and glorifies mm-hmm. it in a way that's not helpful, I guess, because you know they're based on Anne Lister's diaries, which which she were wrote. which were also, for the record, only recently, relatively recently discovered because of the fact that they they were like continuously repressed and hidden and nearly destroyed. Mm-hmm. She wrote them in code as well, so it took people a while to crack that. Every hundred years, someone would yeah. try to crack the code. They would crack the code, realize that what it meant, and be like, oh, let's just forget yeah, and all that. Just, that happened about nearly half a dozen times yeah. before someone was that like... That happened like at least four times. Yeah, yeah, before someone was like, hey, we could publish these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they did. They are based on her diaries. They are very detailed, so you get a really definite sense of basically what a terrible person Anne Lister is from reading her diaries. Mm. Like she's a very she's definitely a very interesting person, absolutely. And like to have a show about her is great. There should be that space for that. But the show ends up romanticizing things. Like I think it is quite creepy the way that she basically grooms Anne Walker, but mm. we're presented as if it's like As if it's her being tender and caring. Yeah. I think it's interesting though because we do have such detailed accounts of her life Mm -hmm. which is not the case in many of the women that we've talked about today Mm -hmm. for one reason or another like it's interesting that we have not only do we have the detailed accounts from her perspective but we know the context of the time she was living in we can pretty accurately just guess at how people felt about her and i read a article for one of my classes and it talked about how the way that they use the fourth wall break in that show It's definitely becoming like a more used trope, but that actually has a very specific history when it comes to lesbians like addressing their own history. Mm -hmm. It's like a film tradition. And if you look back at The Watermelon Woman, it's like in that vein of lesbian history 
specifically being crafted by lesbians themselves mm-hmm. for other yeah. lesbians. And like Gentleman Jack really fits that history of here is we have this woman who literally did craft this diaries not knowing but hoping someone would read them one day and know that she was here and I think it's kind of powerful like as problematic as she is like it is very powerful that now her story is being told and I do feel like the fourth wall break in that is quite powerful because it does feel like Anne Lister like is kind of being like yep I know you're watching me because I knew that would happen. I knew I was like the mm-hmm. shit and one day my <laughs> diaries would be found and one day like you would be watching me going, wow, she's the shit. Like I really like that use of it, but mm-hmm. doesn't mean I find her life that particularly compelling. I'm like, oh my God, it's coal mines. Wow. I don't understand how they're going to make a season two. Yeah, because she dies. <laughs> Honestly, it was a bit of a bummer like reading her Wikipedia page when I first found out about Anne Lister a few years back, just like reading about her life and then it's like just after she had that quote-unquote marriage with Anne Walker she just <laughs> she died like very shortly after that's quite sad so also just, I just need to say this why is there that random subplot with the farming family where the boy murders his dad and hides it and like it doesn't go anywhere oh does that not go anywhere it doesn't go oh, okay wow <laughs> found that kind of interesting but anyway do you think that gentleman jack is respectful to the community i think it is but also i think you shouldn't fall into the trap of trying to make these women in these people into heroes like it's tempting because these stories are so rare that we would want to make these people into our heroes but i think you know obviously we need to be adults and really assess them like even like the other women that we've discussed today like they've done quite A few problematic things, but I think especially because with Gentleman Jack, it's dealing specifically with those problematic events. But framing them not as problematic. Yeah, but framing them as like empowering, as romantic. We need to really like just actually take responsibility for the way that we tell those stories. Mm. Because, you know, while it is tempting to want a hero, you know, you would want someone like Anne Lister to be your hero. If you read her diary, why would you think that that's a good idea, though? I think more people need to approach making biopics about any LGBT person kind of more the way you said that Rupert Everett approached making that film about yeah. Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Like, in a more nuanced way that's like, yes, this person was marginalised in many ways, but they were also... But also we're not going to shy away from the fact that they were a horrible person. Mm. You know, I think a lot of the time we use that term like, oh, they were a flawed person to more explain, like, really menial things that Mm -hmm. people have done. But being a flawed person means, like, more than just, like, oh, they weren't nice to their mum or something. Like, (laughs) it also means being, like, Anne Lister and saying things like, I just don't think poor people deserve the right to have a vote. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't really think women should have the right to vote either. I should, but not not all women, because I'm, like, the best woman, like, ever to live, you know? But yeah, I think more people should take Rupert Everett's approach and be like, I'm going to like show you this person for who they were, and that mm-hmm. includes the ugly parts of who they were. Next up in our TV biopics, briefly, let's talk about Dickinson! <laughs> I love it. It's so much fun. I've finished it. I'm still like... I'm, like, nearly halfway through. Yeah, but. and I think it's really fun in the way that, like, I watched a Hayley Seinfeld interview where she explained it. She was like, Ellie Dickinson was very misunderstood in her time, and this show is trying to see if we can 
understand her in our time. That's a really nice yeah. way of putting that that idea of like to paraphrase, like yeah. creating creating that feeling mm-hmm. on screen over accuracy, like feeling over accuracy. Yeah, I love the way Dickinson fully embraces that. Like yeah. I love the way it uses modern music and modern yeah. slang, like in the Marie Antoinette. 2006 kind of way i love Wiz khalifa as death yeah and i think the costuming is really fun i love the little gags period joke gags that they have mm-hmm. like but my favorite scene i've watched so far is like when emily gets her period at the party <laughs> that she throws. like i love the way she's like no <laughs> it's like yeah. that's the mood though yeah like, ella hunt who we mentioned that terrible weekend where we watched Colette and Vita and Virginia. We also watched Anna and the Apocalypse, which stars Ella Hunt as this teenage girl who is fighting a bunch of zombies at Christmas, and it's a musical as well. And it's a high school drama as well. It's honestly the most iconic. High school musical meets Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. It's the most iconic film ever made, I yeah. believe. And uh, Ella Hunt plays, she plays Sue in Dickinson, and it's really nice to see her yeah yeah it's really nice to see her in things so if you like her in dickinson check out anna in the apocalypse mm-hmm. the thing that gets me about emily dickinson as well though is that do you know we never would have found like we never would have known about her poetry they found it in an attic in mm. an old chest that mm. was owned by a maid they still don't really know who really owned that chest before and how they came to be in mm-hmm. possession of like emily's poetry but essentially without that, we would never have had it because she was barely published when yeah. she was alive. And that really like does my head in that like there's probably a parallel world out there where we don't know about her poetry. And I think the the hard part about that as well, again, is that we don't have a lot of knowledge about Emily Dickinson's life mm-hmm. beyond really basic stuff of like who her family was, who her yeah. siblings were like where she went to school like other Mm -hmm. than those really basic details we don't know a lot um but i think it's really great that that series just went you know what emily dickinson was a yeah she was bi or gay or whatever and she was in love with her sister-in-law and if you don't like that then perish (laughs) i actually wasn't prepared for it to be that gay so quickly even last episode when we mentioned that we would be talking about Dickinson, we were like, yeah, I'm not sure how gay Dickinson is going to be. But then it was very gay. It was very gay. Yeah. It was very gay. And That's like a... the best surprise when some, something's gayer than you thought it would be. I felt like it was like an extra birthday present. I was just so happy with it. <laughs> I was. Yeah, it's a good time and it's really it's fun and unique. Time. And it's got a great soundtrack. Yeah. Like, I can't believe in the year of our Lord 2019, I watched Haley Steinfeld as Emily Dickinson get fingered while your best American girl by Mitski plays. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I love cinema. On that note, what are some other biopics yeah. that are like respectful to the community? Yeah, we've basically only really talked about stuff that we hate <laughs> for the most part. So I think I just want to quickly list some biopics which I think are quite nice anyway. So I think Tom of Finland... Holding mm. the Man, Rocket Man, we did talk about the favorite, Bessie, Freehold, Capote, Happy Prince. I really like Bessie. Um, it's directed by Dee Reese. Woo! Get on that. Get on that. And it's starring Queen Latifah. I think, yeah, we've lost our way a bit, but basically with this whole topic that we wanted to cover, 
oh, it feels so good to like actually have to be at the end of it now. Basically, just the things to consider, like with LGBT biopics, with especially the disrespectful ones, the way that real life LGBT people are portrayed in film really speaks to how we're portrayed in other narratives, like fictional narratives, and how it can be even worse when it's not based in history. Yes. I guess. Yeah, and all the different reasons that these biopics can fail us, like not just the person they're about, not just their community. I feel like a lot of these films isolate people from, from the communities they were a part of. Yes. You know, not only, like literally, these people are often portrayed as like having no one and not having mm. any like community and that's just, in a lot of cases, that is not it's true. It's untrue. Like... I think there's an incentive for them to portray, for them, the them, to portray LGBT people as alone and isolated because they don't want to acknowledge that community. So, and I also think that while we are seeing on some occasions more intersectional biopics, there just needs to be a bigger mm. consideration for how all of the factors that influence people's lives influence them all at once, mm-hmm. not in like compartmentalizations you can't make a movie about freddie mercury without also talking about the fact that he's brown and crone immigrant family and all that stuff you can't make a movie about frida and not talk about her bisexuality as well as all this other like stuff. her disability and her disability her being mexican her being communist her being communist yeah ledge ledge but yeah more treatment of intersectionality because a lot of the time, LGBT people do exist at, like, multiple intersections. Anyway, uh, I think that's it for us for today. Yeah. So, as per usual, you can find us on the socials. Twitter and Instagram, at gaybee underscore club, and our individual socials are linked in the bios of those. Yep. We're on YouTube if you want closed captions. If you, if you have any questions, like if we weren't clear on some things as well, feel free to ask on the socials. Yes. And, um... Also, if you have anything like that you might want us to talk about in future episodes, Ooh. like hit us up. Yeah, you know? we've got a plan, but um, but, we're open to suggestion yeah, at absolutely. this point. Next week, though, next episode, though, we're gonna do our Goldfinch miniseries pitch. Mm-hmm. We're gonna discuss. Donna Tartt's novel, The Goldfinch, the really terrible movie of it that came out this year, mm-hmm. and why we think it would be better as a miniseries and, and what then, we would like in that miniseries. And then we're going to pitch the whole damn thing. Yeah. So if there are any executives listening, <laughs> this is how you're going to do it. Yeah. All right. Be safe and be good, and we'll see you in a fortnight. Yes. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.